Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the darkest days I think I had was we had a merch site to go and pick up five guys who'd all been killed on the same day. They were all from the rifles, I think. And a fob called Fob Wishton, which was halfway up the helmet. And, you know, as you put the ramp down, these five stretchers are coming over the ramp. And they're obviously being carried by their colleagues, their comrades. Each of them had a different flag pinned over the bodies because, you know, they weren't in a coffin yet. These are literally guys on stretchers with just something over the top of them. Their colleagues had put flags over the top of each one of them. And I can only assume that these flags were something, that obviously, that meant to each of the bodies. So there was a Union Jack over one of them. There was a Rifles flag on one of them. There was a Man United flag, I remember. A Welsh flag on one of them. So they all got carried over and sat down. It was just heartbreaking to see the guys who set the stretcher down really carefully. They would always touch the top of the flag and then go back out the ramp. And I thought, these guys have just lost five of their mates. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. Liz McConaughey spent 17 years flying in the RAF's Chinook fleet, during which time she did two tours of duty in Iraq and 10 deployments to Helmand Province in Afghanistan. You're about to hear a graphic account on the realities of war, from saving lives to taking them, and then the mental scars that that can leave behind. Hope you enjoy the episode. Liz McConkey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we were supposed to record this a couple of weeks ago. Yes, we were. <laughs> Talk us through what happened. So um, I, like over the last two months, seemingly developed a stalker. <laughs> so there's a guy from the swimming pool that I used to swim at who took a, let's say, an unhealthy interest in my um, book coming out and my, well, just generally life, really. Um and the first warning sign was when I bumped into him at Tesco's randomly about four weeks ago. And he looked completely unsurprised to see me, had no idea where I lived. Um, or I didn't think he had a clue where I lived um, and was in Tesco. So I was like, what the hell is the random guy from the swimming pool doing here? So your swimming pool was miles away from your Oh, yeah. Swimming pool's the other side of Basingstoke. So uh, and me and my friend had like rather hilariously been referring to this guy, the stalker from the swimming pool, for quite some weeks. <laughs> And then he appears in Tesco's. So, um, so you were joking about it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. stalker as a kind of thing. Yeah. And she, we were in Tesco's whenever I bumped, like literally I turned around and he was there. And, um, and I was trying to give my friend Sue, who was round at the other end of Tesco's, like the international sign of distress from Team America. I was like, come and help me. And, uh, she didn't see. So eventually I found her and said, the stalker's here. So we, um, we left Tesco's. He was behind us in the queue, so we knew he was behind us. We then hid in a shop, got back to the car, and uh, and he was waiting by his car, so he must have been waiting for me to get back to mine. So I started to freak out a little bit at this point. Um, we then let him leave the car park, and then about uh, as we were driving out, sorry, yeah, we let him uh, leave the car park. We waited a couple of minutes, and as we drove out, he was then seven cars behind us. And I was like, he's following me, he's following me. So... My mate talked me off the ledge and went, it's probably just coincidence. 
It's fine. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, she's probably right. And then the following Friday, which was the day I was doing the podcast with you. Yeah. Um, he drove past my house, like both sides. So I've got like a corner house, uh, like an apartment. So he drove round the end of one bit, turned right straight away. So we'd obviously knew where he was going, slowed down at the car park, looked in to see if my car was there, did a loop and then pulled back in outside the front of my house. So I was going mental at this point. So I had to little, grab my little doggy, turn all the lights out, lock the front door and hid in the spare room. So there's this big gnarly like ex-war fighting girl and I'm now like a quivering mess in the spare room <laughs> with my dog on my lap. But um, thankfully I called the police. The police were amazing. They came around the afternoon so I didn't make it down here to do the podcast with you. Um, and all was good. Uh, spent the weekend like a cat in a hot tin roof waiting to see if he was going to come back again. Uh, that was fine. Told all the neighbours. They were like neighbourhood watch. We're going to keep an eye out for him, Liz. And then on the Monday... He came back again while I was away at the gym and my neighbor was in her garden and she said, can I help you? And he said, I'm looking for Liz McConaughey. And she said, she's at work. So um, he said, I've got a card for her and he left a card. So this is on the Monday. So I got straight back home because Vicky texted me, my neighbor, and uh, went straight to see her. And she said, yeah, yeah, he's left the um, the card on, on top of your post box. So I looked and it wasn't there. And we were like, he must have come back and taken it. Anyway, I went then and upstairs to go back into my apartment and the card was on my doormat. So I was like, he's been in the building. So I phoned the police straight away and they escalated it and went straight around. They found out because my neighbor had been amazing and she got his number plate. So um, they went around to tap on his door and basically as soon as he opened the door, apparently they, he said, oh, and said, do you know what this is about? And he said, maybe unwanted attention. So he knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> but anyway, so, and in the card it said, um, congratulations on the book. Um, hoping I bump into you again in Tesco's. If you wear your pink jelly, because I had a pink um, North Face uh, jelly on. I went, I'll find you. And I was like, this is like something from a horror movie. <laughs> so, but it's done now. So um, the police have said not to, yeah. Uh, not to approach me again and not to come to any of the book stuff, which is what I was freaking out most about because I thought if the police don't do anything and he just starts arriving all my book stuff, I will be freaking out. But um, yeah, and my, and my, my dog is a pug, so he's the most useless guard dog in the world. He just licks people to death. I was Aww. like, shit. But um, yeah, so it was a pretty mental start to the book coming out because all the excitement kind of wore off instantly when I thought I'm going to get stalked for life by this guy. But the matter's put to bed now, which is good. There must have been some anxiety going on. Like, Oh, there really was. You've yeah. got a guy that's like, because you, I don't want to freak you out anymore, but like you've noticed him a handful of times following you or bumping into you when he shouldn't have been. Yeah. But what about the times you haven't seen him or, you had, or your neighbor hasn't that's seen him? That's exactly what I was freaking out about because I thought, how does he know where I live? And the police seemed to think he might have followed me home from the swimming pool at some point. And I stopped going to the swimming pool at the start of September. Um, so he must have followed me at some point over the summer. And it's only potluck that I clocked him that day and saw the car. He drove a yellow Fiat 500. So it wasn't oh. exactly a hard car to keep an eye on. <laughs> but um, yeah, and thankfully I've got the best neighbors ever. So Vicky clocked him on the Monday. But um, A yeah. yellow Fiat 500. Now everyone that listens to this is just going to see one of those because yeah. I've never seen one before. Oh, it looks like a pencil sharpener. Yeah, exactly. But I mean a yellow one. And it's going to stick out. So now anyone here, I apologize if you drive a yellow Fiat 500 because everyone else is going to think you're a stalker yeah. and creep. Not a good car to follow someone in. That was really obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very subtle, is it? No. How does a stalker compare, like the, the danger compare to 
riding in a chopper in a war zone. Do you know, someone else, I was telling someone this story about this guy the other day, and I said how almost disappointed in myself I was at how freaked out I got and just how much I crumbled on that Friday. And uh, they said, but Liz, you're, it's, you know, it's a different kind of fear in that in Afghanistan, you're kind of expecting to get shot at and you're expecting to be scared. So you kind of build yourself up to it. Whereas you don't expect it in your own home, which is your safe space. And that actually really resonated. And she was so right in that mm. your home, your roof, and your four walls, that's your safe space. You don't expect stuff to happen there. Um, you do in Afghanistan and stuff did happen. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it did freak me out lots. So it goes back to that Sarah Everard case where after that, the vitriol that was on social media against guys and stuff but like actually hearing from a female where it's happened you're like yeah you're so vulnerable eh? yeah but equally on the back of the Sarah Everard thing I was like you know I've worked with men my entire life like I've been in a really male saturated life Mm. not that you know even when I came out of the forces my jobs have all been mostly blokes and I got really annoyed at that backlash against men and that because actually 99.9% 99.9% of blokes are all right. Mm. And you know, most guys as, don't drive yellow Fiat 500. No, true. But there's equally as many knobhead women out there as there is men. So I'm a bit of a, you know, I'd like to think of myself as like really 50 50 on the PC card. So yeah. I think you're in a good place to comment on that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the jobs that, you know, you've been in that are dominated by men. Why did you want to join the RAF? So my brother joined the army a year before I joined up. And he went up to a place back home in, in Northern Ireland called Palace Barracks. And Palace Barracks is like the recruitment office back home. And I went with him. And uh, he had to go into a little room to do a barb test. And the barb test is basic army entrance test or something. I can't remember what it stands for. So off he went. And there was a magazine on the table outside in this little crew room. And it had a guy on a helicopter hanging on the side of a helicopter on a rope. What I thought was a rope. And I said to the careers office guy, what's this job? this guy's doing hanging out on the rope and he went well it's not a rope for starters it's a wire and the job's helicopter crewman and i was just instantly hooked i just thought that is fucking cool like i didn't that really is know fucking cool. i didn't know much more about it other than that looks fucking cool like i knew none of the stuff that went with the job but so i asked a couple more questions went back up to palace barracks for an interview and then um got accepted through like that first initial selection and then came over to RAF Cranwell in England to do like basic, you had to do an interview and then airman air crew testing. So like after testing, that kind of thing. Somehow managed to pass all that and uh, yeah, got accepted in as a crewman, age 19. Did you always want to be in a chopper and like, didn't you get a choice like to when you go into the RAF to like go fixed swing or? Yeah. So my trade was called Loadmaster. And that basically is exactly what it says in the tin. You're in charge of the load of an aircraft. So think, you know, passenger deck going on your holiday, making sure that all the luggage isn't stacked at the front or the back of the aircraft so you're not going to, like, you know, crash on the on the runway. Um, and that's exactly what an Air Force loadmaster is. It's someone who is in charge of the CFG, center of gravity of the aircraft, ultimately. Um, and yeah, we've got fixed wing loadmasters. So Hercules, we used to have the BC-10 whenever I arrived in the Air Force. Um, and TriStar, which is essentially like, we call them the shiny fleet, because they were like this shiny aircraft that everyone went like on, on deployment on. But then you had the Hercules, which is a bit more of like a battlefield fixed wing kind of aircraft. Used to drop a lot of the SF stuff off and, and take us into slightly more remote places. 
And then, then you had the helicopter fleet and the helicopter fleet had Chinooks, Merlins, Pumas and Search and Rescue as well. So, um, but Loadmaster, the whole title covered all of those aircraft. Um, but I only ever wanted to go on helicopters. When it comes to the load of a Chinook, yeah. how much can those things carry? Lots. So 24 and a half tons is the maximum we can take. And that's, I mean, oh, that's yeah. huge. The reason why the Chinook's 24 and a half tons is because a Chinook that's stripped out of everything with the rotor blades taken off weighs 10 and a half tons. So a Chinook, in theory, can undersling its own body weight. It's the only helicopter that can do that. So if a Chinook went down somewhere in the Bondi and another Chinook had to go and get it, you know, it would obviously have to be stripped out by the engineers, take all the internal workings out, drain the fuel, take the rotor blades off. But you could recover a Chinook with a Chinook. But 24 and a half tons is a lot. So, you know, for anyone listening who hasn't ever been inside one, you can fit two Landovers inside a Chinook. You can, because the seats on the side fold up. So generally on a normal day, you would have these seats along the side walls where the passengers sit or the troops. Um... And then you can flip those up and they basically hinge against the wall. And then you can put up to two landers in or a landover trailer, 105 gun, which is the big guns that the army use, the artillery use. And then whatever doesn't fit inside, we'll put underneath on straps. Basically, the underslung load straps are three meters in length or five meters in length. And they're heavy. I mean, a five meter strop, I struggle with. And, you know, I have to pull it along the ground, whereas some of the bigger guys just sling it over their shoulder. But that again comes back to this whole... You find a way to do it. Even if you're a female doing a man's job, mm. you, you adapt and overcome. You find a way to do things. Have you ever been on any like, missions where you have like special forces and Land Rovers where you touch down and they've like, gone out in their land? Straight out of the back. Most of the stuff in Herrick was like that because you couldn't be on a landing site you know, longer than 30 seconds. Some of the deliberate ops we would do, you'd be going into somewhere where it was a known Taliban location. You would basically land on, ramp would go down, you know, you give the troops a five-minute call, a two-minute call, and then 30 seconds out. And as soon as we touched the aft wheels on, the number one crewman at the ramp would be lowering the ramp. And as soon as the guys had stopped rolling forward, the troops are straight out the back. And you can dispatch, like, we used to carry 40 troops for deliberate ops like that, and they could be off the aircraft in a matter of, like, 10 seconds, just straight out the back. And then as soon as the last man's over the ramp, the number one crewman will call ramp traveling, and the aircraft will depart. So it could be, you guys could land for 10 seconds and it would be completely Literally, yeah shocking all out the back spit all the troops out go um we also used Shit, to drop <laughs> yeah we used to drop pallets off as well and pallets would basically exactly as it says you know a pallet load of ammunition or water or whatever the troops needed and up the helmand valley some of the fobs would get pinned down for forward day. operation Base, bases yeah, forward fobs yeah um, but some of those would get pinned down for days with Taliban fire. So we'd have to resupply the guys with ammunition. So we'd basically have to land on and the pallets would be attached, or would be loaded under roller conveyor, which is just rollers in the floor of the aircraft. So we would put the pallets on and then as soon as the aircraft touched down, put the ramp down, cut the lashing tape and the pallet would just roll out the back. Just vomiting out. Yeah, and then we'd go. So it's literally a touch and go. So you would literally be on the, on the ground for seconds because, again, the more you're on the ground, you, the, the longer they've got to shoot at you. So <laughs> the idea yeah. being is get on the ground, get gone yeah. as, as quick as you can. I don't realize how many guns that a Chinooks have got on them. Can you talk me through like if they're fully, a fully loaded up fully aircraft? Loaded up. Yeah. So on the ramp, we have a, a gun called the M60. And the M60, well, it was used in the Vietnam War. That's how old they are. Like, they're old. I used to call it old trusty because it's like, duh, 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 duh. it's really sort of slow rate of fire. 
And the reason why we have an M60 on the ramp is because you can fit and remove an M60 really easy with like a pit pin. So you can basically pull a pin out, lift the whole thing off and then put it back on again. And that's useful on the ramp because if you're going to load something like a Landover, you obviously have to take the gun off, get the Landover on, put the gun back on. Or you, the, that roller conveyor I was talking about before, mm. when you're dropping off ammunition, you wouldn't have the gun fitted for that, but then you'd want to have it on for the rest of the day. So you'd put the, the weapon back on. That's what's on the ramp. And it's like uh, a sustained rate of fire about a thousand rounds a minute. So it's quite slow. <laughs> Relatively speaking. And it fires seven. Relatively speaking, yeah. yeah. But at the front, we've got left and right, we've got, I think, the M134, which is made by Dylan Brothers out in America. And it's called, we call it the minigun, which always used to make me laugh because there's fuck all mini about it. It is massive, this thing. And it's got a rate of fire of 3,000 rounds a minute, Oof. which is like a lightsaber. Um, and when you, you see You could it, literally cut a tree down. Yeah, you can destroy a Hilux vehicle in seconds. Uh, you know, I've seen it done. Um, and it looks like Star Wars. When you open up at nighttime with it, it's like just a constant because... Uh, we use 762 on that as well. And um, we got, I think it's like three normal rounds to one tracer round. So essentially it just looks like a lightsaber. Um, but it's pretty impressive and it makes a lot of noise as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it can, it sounds funny because I've had to use it in anger a few times, but every time you open up with a minigun on a training sort of, you can't help but smile. It just brings a smile on your face, which is a, a, a little bit, I mean, we're not war junkies, but you just can't help but do it. It's a, a, a boy thing. Has it got has it got a big kick on it, or can you just it like does. no? It, especially when you're flying. So I used to be a gunnery instructor, and half the stuff we used to do was try and work up the junior crewmen to get used to holding, like firing the weapon and manhandling it because it's really heavy. It's about fifty-seven kgs, but when you're flying at one hundred and twenty knots, it pushes back in the airflow, so you've almost got to jam your body against it to have it pointing in the right direction. Because don't forget those barrels. There's six barrels on it. They're not in the airflow being pushed back, which then obviously pivots the inside of the gun forward. So you've right. always got to keep pulling it back towards you. So, I mean, it's a beefy weapon, but then to try and bring that onto a target, it's easy enough when you're in the steady hover and you're just looking at a target out in the three o'clock. But now I imagine that you're flying an aircraft that's flying at 80 knots or 100 knots or 120 knots, and then you have to overshoot because you're getting shot at, which is where the worst case scenario would be in Afghanistan. You know, you're not, it's not all perfect scenario it's you're now maneuvering the aircraft banking left banking right you're trying to bring your weapon sights onto an enemy target i'm hearing a lot of excuses you you've got you've got three thousand bullets (laughs) going out a minute you can hose in either so we used to i mean it's not it wouldn't be hard to hit anything with a minigun because you literally could just bring your tracer onto any target but again we have really strict rules of engagement out in theater so whenever certainly at the start and the end of the campaign it was um, self-defense you know the rules of engagement were self-defense only I think the best way to sum it up and the way I thought about it was if you get to a point where you think it's him or me it's gonna be him like if one of us is dying today it's not gonna be me it's gonna be you mate and you've got to have that pinch moment where you go he's about to pull the trigger and we're gonna he's gonna shoot us mm. you can't preempt it you know there's been various stories about you know Americans just hosing people down and that's not what the british forces did do you think they did do you think the americans did do that they had a different rules of engagement so they were within their legal rights to Team do america that. rules of engagement yeah and at one point we had uh 49 alpha which was our rules of engagement got escalated and 49 alpha meant that anyone wearing a black turban who was suspected taliban 
a north of Highway 1. So Highway 1 is the big road that runs, well, I say big road, it's the only road that runs from the west to the east of Southern Helmand. So basically between Lashkigar and Kandahar. But anyone north of Highway 1 wearing a black turban under 49 Alpha, we were allowed to legitimately open fire on if we suspected that they were had lethal intent. So that gave a lot more freedom, even for us as British troops. And some people did use it. I mean, some people, you know, who I worked with were out to get, you know, just out to put rounds down and have a, you know, get a kill, mm. have a fight. For me, I was a bit more, you know, you have to live with the consequences of pulling that trigger for the rest of your life. It could just be a guy with his kids on the back of his motorbike and not Taliban. So unless someone was directly shooting at me, I wouldn't have shot back. But there definitely were people that <laughs> escalated it slightly. But again, we, we had the rules of engagement to allow that. So they weren't actually breaking any rules. It's just how your moral compass sits. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tricky. And that's the hardest bit sometimes is you don't want to scare the young crewmen into being scared to pull the trigger. You want them to make that call when they need to make that call. But equally, you've got to let them know that they can't just hose anything down. You know, they've got to be think really carefully about it. Can you remember any moments where you made that call and you're like, let's go? And the first time I had to open up with the guns was on a, a routine tasking day. And sometimes the days that caught you out were the, you know, like the really boring ones where you didn't expect anything to happen. And we were just picking up some troops from somewhere southeast of Lashkagar. And the first thing you notice when you're being shot at most of the time, unless it's a rocket in which you hear it, if it's small arms fire, you just either see the sand kicking up around the aircraft because that's usually if, if they're getting closer you'll see little pits of sand getting kicked up or you'll hear a really hollow tink, tink, tink on the aircraft because it's so freaking noisy at Chinook. Mm. You, don't hear, you don't hear the gun firing. You just hear the, the end of the round. Nine times out of 10, people don't even know they've been shot at until they get back to base and you do a, a walk around at the end and there's freaking holes everywhere. But yeah, we got opened up there. So we had to return fire with the M60 that time. And then on a deliberate op, we were going to somewhere southwest of Lashkar this time. And had to uh, open up on a Hilux with his two Taliban on a Hilux. Just, I mean, we were three ship of Chinooks. It was, it got, we, you know, you couldn't not hear us coming. It was pretty noisy. It was mm. a Taliban stronghold. And we ended up having to overshoot and come back in again. And that meant that we'd basically woke them all up. They knew where we were coming from. And the whole sky lit up like Blackpool illuminations because they were shooting at us. So it was a case of, well, if it's again, it was him or me, it's him. So had to open up that time. I would have just destroyed the Hilux. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and the other aircraft opened up as well from their side. So, but again, that's, that's why it's fitted. You know, it's not a water pistol, you know, it's there mm. to defend the aircraft and we had 40 troops on board. So, you know, there's no point in, in, you know, regretting that afterwards if you've been taken out of the sky. And well, you've, yeah, yeah. And you've saved a whole lot of lives. Yeah. Like that's the reality of it, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you're not opening up there, you're, you've got 40 troops on the back. Yeah. And you, and your pilots. Yeah. And your crewmen. Yeah. So that's what you're there to do. That's what you get paid the money for. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We'll come back to Afghanistan and, and we'll talk about Iraq as well. Did you ever use the Chinook for personal uses at all? <laughs> yeah, I could probably. Yeah, there's a few times. So um, the the luxury of a Chinook is, like I said, you can fit cars inside it, can't you? So um, I was home doing some tasking in Northern Ireland, where I'm originally from, if you haven't guessed by now. Um, and... We were doing two or three weeks tasking over there, moving a lot of the mountain sites where there used to be observation towers around the province. So when you talk about tasking, because I'm imagining it's going to come up 
again in the interview you're talking yeah. about the chinook soup you guys have been given a task to go and move something from a to b yeah so right. it's like you wake up in the day, in the morning and your wife goes i need you to go and get milk and then pick up the kids and then do this and do that and do that essentially we tasking. get a tasking sheet that is uh you've got to go and move 20 troops from a to b we need you to move an understand load from b to c c to a and that's basically what you're tasking so you get a tasking sheet in the morning and nine times out of ten it doesn't reflect what actually happens when you get to somewhere i mean we, you know especially in afghanistan you go to some of the fobs and you're meant to be picking up like 20 guys and you put the ramp down and there's like 45 people stood there <laughs> on like a step ladder and a donkey and a big roll of wire and you're like this is not what it says on the tasking sheet but that's the beauty of it being a crewman you just kind of make it fit in you find a space for it and you get it in but um so yeah, we were doing some tasking back in Northern Ireland and um, the other good thing about the Chinook is you can fly a single crewman. So if you're flying an uh, instrument flight, which is essentially just like the airlines do around here, you climb up to height, you go on the the, the flight highways and you basically um, fly back to Odium. You don't need two crewmen for that. So I asked if I could stay over in Northern Ireland for the weekend and go and visit my parents and everyone was like, yeah, it's not a problem. Um, and I then went, well, can I take my car? <laughs> So I had a mini at the time uh, and I put my little mini in the back of my Chinook and we flew over to Northern Ireland and it was pretty funny watching the Puma squadron who were based in Northern Ireland as I reversed my little it's mini the out. Puma squadron, that's another type of... Yeah, Puma's a smaller helicopter right? and they can't fit things like cars inside. So yeah. I reversed my little mini out. Please tell me it was a pink mini. Oh no, it was, a br- it was like a maroon <laughs> colour. But everyone kept calling it the brown mini and I was like, it's not brown, it's maroon. <laughs> So uh, I parked it up and then we went into the crew room and the uh, 2.30 guys who were the squad that were out there were like, did a fucking mini just come out of the back of that Chinook? And I was like, yeah, that might have been mine. So uh, it was really funny driving off camp. Older girl was quite tight in its security. And as I was driving off camp, the the guard stopped me and they couldn't understand why I didn't have a car pass leaving camp because you have to get a car pass to come on to camp. And I said, well, I came in in a helicopter. And they went, yes, but how did the car get here? And I said, well, the car came with me in the helicopter. Well, we know you came in the helicopter, but how did this vehicle get on camp? It was in the helicopter with me. And this little kind of conversation went on and eventually they got their heads around it. So, uh, so that was really good fun. And uh, I mean, I've delivered Christmas cards before for people. You went back to school on yeah, that Yeah, took it, whenever I was home doing that tasking, I uh, took my Chinook into my old school and that was a really good day. That's probably one of the best days I've ever had in the Air Force. Because when I was at school, I didn't want to go to university. And I'd already kind of been accepted into the Air Force halfway through my A-levels. So I kind of really stopped focusing on them a little bit. But my my school was a grammar school. And they were like, oh, you've got to go to university. You've got to fill in a UCAS form. You're wasting your life if you don't go to university. And, and I didn't. And I joined the Air Force instead. And what was really nice was three years later taking my Chinook in. And all the teachers going, actually, this really proves that you can have an amazing job and you don't necessarily need a degree to do it. So it kind of changed the, the school's perception, I think, a little bit of like how good a career in the forces could be. And I really hope now that the book's out, that I'm going back to hopefully do a talk with them in the new year. But I think, again, it just kind of backs that message up that you don't need a degree. Truth be told, you sometimes don't even need A-levels to have a really amazing career as long as you've got passion and a dream. So... So yeah, that was a good day. A really good day. When you were combat ready, you went to Iraq, right? Yeah. That must have been a big moment for you. I'm so thankful that I went to Iraq first. 
and not Afghanistan first because I think a lot of the guys that came behind me had exactly the same sort of career training profile but their first deployment to a war zone was Afghanistan in like 06, 07 when Afghanistan was really kinetic and you know we're talking maybe their second or third day in theater they're picking up either dead dead soldiers or limbs or torsos of people and that was a real baptism of fire oh yeah that's heavy i was i was really lucky i I referred it as my normality bars so as i went through like iraq and afghanistan my what became normal in terms of getting shot at and getting rocketed kind of slowly built up and built up to the point where um you know when afghanistan when it started getting really tasty you kind of used to it Mm. you're almost like zoned out to danger so it's really, it's really weird. It kind of, I think all of us kind of got to that point. And I remember saying to someone that my last merch shot in Afghanistan ever. Mer- that being, that's a medical evacuation. response team, yeah. So the flying ambulance. But my last one of those was an American soldier who'd been killed and he came on the aircraft on a stretcher covered in an American flag. And one of the American medics handed me his foot in a clear plastic bag. And we're like, here's his foot. And I was like, okay, Whoa. just put it at the floor. And it was so normal. It was for me, it was like, didn't even bat an eyelid. And I think that's where a lot of us as crewmen, a lot of just Chinook crews, pilots and crewmen, had got to such a point at the end of that Afghan era that stuff like that was normal. And it's not so, normal. <laughs> so desensitized. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Explain to me what bunting is. Oh, bunting. So bunting is a very fun aspect of flying on a Chinook. Bunting is where... And we used to do it a lot in Iraq, not so much in Afghanistan because it was a bit, uh, well, Afghanistan's too dangerous and you didn't want to mess up the aircraft in any way. But bunting is where you climb the aircraft and then drop the lever really quickly. So the whole aircraft drops really, really Oof. quickly and you essentially go weightless. So you, every whenever we bump with, with, the, with passengers on board, we always tell them to put their seatbelts on nice and tight or if they know what we're about to do, they loosen them up so they get airborne off their seats and then slam back down into them. But everything in the back of the cabin gets airborne, including the chocks that we bring on board, anyone's bags. And it is literally like the funniest scene ever for about 30 seconds is everything gets airborne, floats around in the airflow and then falls back to the floor as you're dropping through the air weightless. But the problem is, is that everything in the gearboxes also gets airborne. So we used to do bunting around the place in, in Iraq when we were just filling time between tasking. And uh, we'd land on and the engineers would be like, uh, have you not been bunting? We'd be like, no. And they'd clearly open all the panels up up, up top and everything was just covered in oil. <laughs> and it's like, might have been bunting a little bit, just a little bit. Or just like say it was turbulence. <laughs> and they're like, turbulence? Like there's no wind at all. And we're like, well, you know. So, uh, But you're supposed to do it, eh? isn't it a safety thing? Or are you supposed to practice it? Or was it just for fun? It was just for fun. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for fun, bunting. So, um I mean, I suppose it's in theory teaching the pilots how to do a quick maneuver to drop height, but you don't actually ever have to really do that. So you fly up as high as you can. Yeah, or just not, you didn't have to go really high, just as long as you're a, a decent level so you could drop the lever without. There was a famous story of one of the crewmen who was on the broomstick. So we always have a broom in the back of the aircraft, like a brush, not a witch's broom. But uh, he rode the length of the cabin on the broom, weightless, because that's exactly what you are. You're weightless, you're like an astronaut for like. 10 20 seconds so it's great <laughs> sounds like so much fun <laughs> it is good fun yeah. what what happened with the sewer pipe it's hot in iraq like it's really hot in iraq it's about 40 degrees and there's these big pipes that come up through from from the, the surface of the earth 
And we assumed it was water. So one day, JP, my pilot, was like, should we fly through it? And I was like, yes, because I was in the door at the front of the aircraft. And there's nothing better than having a lovely big spray. It's like kids running through sprinklers, isn't it? And uh, we flew through the sprinkler and it wasn't water. It was sewage. <laughs> we went straight through a sewage pipe. A story that he never lets me forget. But it was all his fault. But uh, yeah, so we, uh, but that's where a lot of the pilots used to learn their skill sets because those 15 minutes, and then we'd go and pick the guys up, move them somewhere else, have another 15 minutes to kill, move them somewhere else. So uh, that's where a lot of the junior pilots would learn all the skill, like how to handle the aircraft properly. So we do bunting, lots of quick stops and wingovers, which is a quick stop is essentially you just fly the aircraft and then try and stop it as quick as you can in the air and then land on. So it'd be good for, if you saw, saw the troops really late in a field or something like that, and you had to stop really quickly and land, or uh, like at air shows, you see the Chinook displayed a lot in the air shows. Um, and then wingovers are where you basically climb and then tip the aircraft over its shoulder to the right or to the left, and then land. So it's again, it's like you've overshot a target, you have to come back and go in. So we practice all these skills, and that's where you know, it was a perfect time to do it, really. Yeah. So when you got to when you got to Afghanistan, what was your job there? So was it in the merch, right? Yeah. So Afghanistan was a, a, almost a carbon copy of Iraq to begin with. So it was routine tasking again, and most of that was taking stuff from Kandahar across to Camp Bastion, which hadn't even been built yet. Bastion was just a barbed wire fence with some, you know, ISO containers and a couple of tents. So all the stuff that built Bast- Camp Bastion up, which was huge by the end, all was taken across by Chinooks. So that was kind of routine tasking. Uh, again, we had a small footprint of soldiers in Helmand at the time. So we had Lashkagar, which was quite close to Bastion. We had Goresh, which was northeast of Bastion. And then one other site further up the valley at Kajaki. And that's where all the British troops were. So a really small footprint. Um, and we would uh, move those guys around. Um, and then because we have British troops on the ground in Afghanistan, we had a thing called MERT. So that's where medical emergency response team comes in. And it's essentially the flying ambulance. So we always had to have one aircraft and crew on standby at Camp Bastion so that if any of those British guys got injured, we could be there as fast as possible and recover them back to Bastion. Talk me through the process of how you'd find out. So you'd be in camp. And yeah. how what, what was the process to going and picking someone up like how did you know what did you do yeah so the merc duty was uh originally it was a week's time at a time so you would hold the duty for a week as a crew and you would hold it with a set of medics there was four medics and there was i think six for force protection uh that was the first early days and then it went down to 24 duty because it was so traumatic the stuff that we were doing the heads of sheds decided to reduce the duty time so it was 24 on, 24 off. And in that 24 hours, you would hold a response time of 15 minutes notice to move at, at during the day and 30 minutes notice to move at nighttime for obvious reasons you could sleep and then you would uh, get woken up from sleep and go. But so that was your response time. So you would you couldn't go to the gym, you couldn't disappear off. You just were on always sat in the tent waiting for the bat phone to go. So what would happen if a troop got injured up in Helmand in the valley anywhere? And when I say a troop, I, I mean British troops, you know, Yanks, the Dutch that were there, um, or Afghan locals, and including Taliban as well. We had one incident where I had to go and pick up a Taliban soldier, which was interesting. Really? Yeah. How yeah. was there? Morally really difficult because the same, we had to go and pick up the uh, other British soldiers that had been hit in the same contact like, incident. And we had like three or four British guys came on as stretchers. And then a Taliban came on a, on a stretcher. And 
I mean, that, that says a lot about the British forces and how they value human life as a human life so that they were bringing this guy back to maybe question. But uh, yeah, that was pretty morally hard. But anyway, so someone gets injured anywhere in Helmand and a nine-liner gets put through. So a nine-liner is a really distinct format of how you report a casualty. So it starts with uh, the grid, call sign of the troops that are there, uh, mechanism of injury, how, what the injury is. So the way that an injury is classed is that, or a casualty, sorry, is classed, is that a T1 is the worst injuries. So someone has, either, like is on death's doorstep, we need to go and get them right now. T3 is walking wounded. So, uh, you know, you know someone who's maybe, I don't know, sprained an ankle or... Uh, hurt their shoulders but it's not catastrophic and t2 was something in between so they're pretty bashed up but you know they're not going to die right now um and then t4 was a casualty who had died so uh so that's how they classed them so that would be on the nine liner and then it would be various other bits and bobs you know what color the smoke was going to be on the way in so this information would all come through from the troops into battle hq at camp bastion they would then phone our phone in the tent straight away it would ring and they would ring the medics next door and the engineers uh, as well. Everyone then would sprint straight out of the aircraft and get start to spin the aircraft up. So you'd have the engineers running out to take off. Well, most of the time during the day, there wouldn't be any covers or ropes on. They just came out to help us get started. The medics would be sprinting out and they'd be putting on all the medical gear and like priming lines, getting cannulars ready. And the force protection guys would run out. They'd be getting their body armor on, headsets, that kind of thing. And we would spin that aircraft up as fast as we physically could. So you'd be doing combined checks. You'd have one crewman doing the job of two crewmen while someone else was like helping loading kit and whatnot. It was just complete chaos, but it was really slick chaos. So we'd then get airborne and fly out to wherever the grid was that we'd been given. And sometimes you didn't even have all the information. You just got a grid and a call sign. So you'd just go and get the rest of the information on the way on the radio. Did you ever, look, when you're waking up in the middle of the night, and with one of these calls, is there anything you guys take or anything that you guys can, is there anything that you can wake yourself up with apart from just adrenaline? You don't have time. Yeah. And the adrenaline is straight, it spikes right. straight away. So as soon as that phone goes in the tent, everybody, everyone wakes up and right. it is straight out. And yeah, you don't, you just don't have time for, you know, I've run out before with my pajamas still on under my flying gear because you just like kit on, go. Wow. Getting okay. dressed on the way to the aircraft. Uh, it's bonkers. And, you know, even when you're getting ready for bed at, uh, when you're on IRT or merch, sorry, you, you know, you leave your boots at the end of the bed exactly where you know they are. Your head torch is right beside your bed. And when I say bed, it's like a cot bed. It's not, it's not fancy here. <laughs> but everything is exactly where you know you can get it. It's like being a fireman on duty, essentially. So as soon as you wake up, you know exactly where your stuff is and you're straight out of the cabin. And in the evenings when the light is fading in Camp Bastion, we would walk out to the aircraft and we would prep our MBGs, which are the night vision goggles that we'd wear. And we'd put them on the air, like put them on our helmets. We'd, uh, we'd zero them in so that the, the vision was good on them. And we'd do all our night checks to get all the lights switches made so that the lights were already in the position they needed to be. So that if we got a shout in the middle of the night, we just went straight out and all that stuff was already done. So anything we could do to make that start quicker, we did at every every turn, really. So, and it was it was fucking quick. I mean, I think you know, say under five minutes was probably my quickest ever getting airborne. But from the time the bet phone rang, yeah, under five minutes and you'd be in the air. Yeah. So you're watching Game of Thrones, and the next thing you're flying over the wall of Bastion, loading the weapons. 
we would talk to Bastion HQ as we were leaving. And then eventually when we got nearer to the troops location, we would switch on to the troops net and then we would speak directly to the guys on the ground and they'd be able to give us the most up-to-date information. And it was sometimes really chaotic because you'd be talking to the guys on the ground and you'd be hearing them blowing out of their asses as they're running with a stretcher. Because wherever we went to necessarily recover the casualty wasn't where the incident had happened. You know, if they were in a contact in a compounded area, they would then have to extract the casualty on the ground to somewhere where we could land. So nine times out of 10, they had to run for like a kilometer with a stretcher with their mate on it. So you'd hear all this happening on the radio and you know, you'd still, you could still hear gunfire in the background sometimes. It was absolutely crazy, but we would always have an Apache with us as well. So the Apache would give us top cover and we would go in and, and get the casualty. So we'd land on and sometimes, you know- Was that Prince Harry in the, in the yeah, uh, Apache? yeah. Prince Harry did his thing with us, yeah, and his and his Apache. I don't think I ever did a deployment when he was there at the same time, but I mean the Apaches were really good. They uh, used to try and get ahead of us to get overhead before we got there, so that they could just clear the area and make sure it was secure. Mm. But sometimes when we were pretty light, the Chinook could outrun the Apache, so we wouldn't wait for them. We'd just go on some of the T one shots because T one, I say, someone was dying in a ditch. Right. At one point, Afghanistan was the only place in the world where someone with a non-survivable injury could survive. So that's that statistic is just immense. So anywhere else in the world, if you had a non-survivable injury, the the whole point of that statement is you were dead. You know, you're going to die. But in Afghanistan, you could survive, and it's because of the medics and the British, you know, the the army medics, the air force medics, they were just amazing. So uh, that's quite a statistic, really, and something that the British forces should be very proud of. A guy I had on my podcast previously, a guy called Mark Ormrod. Yeah. He was evacuated. He lost like both his legs, triple amputee. Yeah. Like any other situation. He'd be dead. He, he'd be dead. Yeah. If that hadn't happened on a battlefield in Helmand, Mark would be dead. 100%. And it's the, the medics that we had and, and the team, not just in the aircraft with us, but back at, back at Nightingale Hospital at Bastion, um, you know, it was... They were just amazing. They were, you know, absolutely the sharp end of the spear in what they did. And I mean, some of that, some of that knowledge they brought back to the UK now, and it's still really, you know, there was one. Remember the uh, Alton Towers incident a couple of years ago with this yeah. crash at Alton Towers, and one of the kids I think lost their legs. I think some kids yeah, were yeah. killed. But in Afghanistan, we had a, a word called "op vampires," and if you called "op vampires" across on the radio, it meant the blood was required at the hospital. So sometimes we'd come back on an IRT shout, sorry, merch shout. I keep calling it IRT because that's what it originally was called in Iraq. But we'd be coming back to Bastion. We'd call up vampires across the radio. And that meant that everyone in the hospital knew that blood was required straight away. Somebody was bleeding out. And one of the medics had done merch in Afghanistan was working at the hospital near Alton Towers the day of that crash. And he called up vampires on the radio. And enough people who'd been involved in Afghanistan picked up on what that word meant. And knew that blood was going to be required, wow. which I think is a really cool story. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's lessons that we like learned out there that have changed the way the whole of the UK medical system works. That's um, crazy. So and even like you look as, as close back as COVID, and Nightingale Hospital was what they called the hospital in London. Yeah, was that from? Yeah, Afghanistan. So, yeah. So uh, uh. and again, you know, the, the medics that we had were just outstanding absolutely angels flying angels i call them we used to see them like put people back together at, at our very feet and sometimes if it was night flying 
because we had to turn all the lights off in the cabin, they would have to ha- literally have head torches on or hold a torch in their mouth while putting a cannula into a body while it's vibrating. And we're like, as in the whole aircraft's vibrating. And we're doing some tactical flying to avoid gunfire. And they're just there saving lives. When you get them on, get the person on board and the medics are working on them, you ask them how fast or how high you want them to fly. How does that process work? What's that for? Yeah, so different injuries require different things. Um, Some injuries, uh, if it's someone who's just bleeding out, they need to get back to Bastion as soon as possible. So we'll ask the medics, do you want us to go high and smooth? Because if you've climbed a height, you're generally going to be a bit smoother flying-wise. And also you're less likely to get shot at because, uh, uh, well... 762 mainly can only go to about 2,000 feet. So if you're up at 3,000 feet, that that the, the rounds can't hit you. So we can climb up really high and then there's no chance we're going to have to do any wacky maneuvering to avoid enemy fire. So that's one option. And if it's a head injury, generally that's what the medics would want because they'd want the nice stable flight, the nice smooth aircraft. But some of the injuries, if it, if it was someone bleeding out, they would just want back to Bastion as fast as possible, whichever route that may take. And uh, up the middle of the Helmand Valley was a thing called the Green Zone. And the Green Zone was where uh, the irrigation system was from the river that went up through Helmand. And uh, the irrigation system meant that the whole area was really lush green. But it's also where most of the Taliban were hiding because it's really, really easy to hide in the Green Zone. So we would always get shot at going across the Green Zone. So we always used to routinely climb, go across it and descend on the other side. How close were the bullets when they were shooting at you? How close were the bullets to you? Oh, I've been I've been missed by bullets crossing the green zone by like a foot. Like whereas I've got a picture of me with my finger in a hole above my head and a bullet's gone right over the top of my head through the aircraft and missed me by like a foot and a half. So, but it's usually like pepper potting kind of stuff. It's, it's not like a... That's still killing you though. Yeah, it's still, <laughs> it's still going to kill you. Well, that's the beauty of a Chinook is that there's so much redundant space on a Chinook compared to like a Puma aircraft where... The cockpit, all the main gearboxes and all the important stuff right. is really close together. So it can take some punishment. Yeah, a Chinook can take a lot of rounds and still fly. And everything on a Chinook has got a redundant system. So like, there's two engines. If you lose one engine, you can still keep flying. You know, the rotor blades, you can take a foot and a half of one of those blades. I've seen it done and still continue to fly. So the blades could take fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's called a battlefield helicopter for that very reason. It can literally be pepper potted, Loose systems, all the hydraulics have got a backup, and on that thing, we'll still keep flying. Really, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's phenomenal. So, uh, but yeah, the, that's where the medics would decide which way they wanted to get back. And sometimes it was a case of just get us, just fucking go. Yeah. So if we had to go, that was straight through the green zone, like fifty feet. Go fly it like a stool. Oh <laughs> get by the bastions. So, but it was some of the best flying you ever did. Didn't Ross Kemp go on a mission with you? <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. <laughs> yes, Ross Kemp did. So uh, he did, he visited Afghan um, to, to film his, one of his first series, I think. I can't remember what it was actually called, like, forces in, in Helmand or something but we had to fly him into Musicala we were he was uh going up there to visit one of the fobs for about a week or so so he was on the back of our aircraft and I mean I've never met the man before I didn't particularly I wouldn't say I didn't particularly like him but I didn't know much about him but we just generally hate press and hate celebrities and you know anyone who's not in the little chinook like circle of trust we generally hate anyway so, so he fell into that category and he was on the back of the aircraft sat opposite me I was the number one crewman, which is the crewman at the ramp. And uh, Leggy, who was the other crewman up front, said, I dare you to write on a sick bag, Liz. This is how we communicate with people, is uh, we write on the sick bags that are like distributed up and down the back of the aircraft, the seats. So uh, he said, I dare you to write in a sick bag. <laughs> which one of these twats is Ross Kemp then? So uh, got my little sick bag down, wrote on it, held it up, showed it around all the troops in the cabin. Uh, at which point Ross Kemp just looked at it, read it, laughed and flicked me the bird. And uh, he was chuckling away. So I was like, oh, that's all right. He's got a sense of humor. Um, and then he got his little notepad out and he wrote on it, which one of these is your boyfriend then? Which made me blush. I went bright red. But soon enough, we were obviously making an approach into Musicala because it's not a very long flight from Bastion. And so I was manning the weapon, uh, the M60. And we landed on and he honestly worked so hard to get all the kit off the back of the aircraft we had you know I, I had this vision in my head that he would just like saunter off like some kind of like press star wannabe but he didn't he was brilliant he got his kit off came back on to help all the troops get their stuff off came back on to help other people who were you know he, he wasn't attached to get their stuff off he was just brilliant and uh yeah honestly I, I you know can't speak highly enough of him but yeah then bumped into he then came back to Bastion about a week later and one of my colleagues was talking to him because uh, he did like a meet and greet at the coffee shop on camp. And uh, he said to Toddy, uh, oh, one of your crewmen flew us into Musicala the other day. It was a female. And Toddy's like, oh, and he went, her name was Gloria. And Toddy said, because my, whenever I was away in Afghan, I ended up with the nickname Gloria Stitz. So we all used to have really stupid name badges. So we had like, you know, there's a the classic bend over and, uh, all that kind of stuff. Huge arse was another good one. And I had, well, I originally had enormous knockers, but uh, then it changed to Gloria Stitz. So Gloria Stitz was on a, a name badge on the back of my helmet and it was a black name badge with pink writing on it. It was really funny. And obviously you said quick enough, Gloria Stitz. Yeah. Ross Kemp didn't get it. So he said to Toddy, oh, that was a crewman called Gloria. And Toddy said, Gloria? Uh... Oh, you mean Liz? And Ross Kemp went, no, 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 this girl's name was definitely Gloria. And Todd went, yeah, but her real name's Liz. And he said, like, must be a different girl. This girl had Gloria written on the back of her helmet, Gloria Stitz. And Todd goes, yeah, yeah, but her name's Liz. Ross Kemp just didn't all get it. So that was fine. And then uh, about a year later, uh, John, who was one of the pilots, he was getting a Millie Award. So the son did those a spate of Millie Awards, which are military awards. And it was like a big gala night, you know, like the Pride of Britain Awards type thing. And John was sat at the same table next to Ross Kemp. And the same conversation pretty much had was that, you know, they got talking about going into Musicala and Ross Kemp recalled the story of this crewman, Gloria, that had flown him in. And John, as a pilot, took him a bit longer to switch on. He was like, 
do we not have a Gloria on the squadron? Uh, but because it was so viewers, it didn't take them long to figure out it was me. It was like, oh, no, no, that's Liz. And Ross Kemp straight away. I was like, no, somebody else said that. You know, no, this girl was called Gloria. So, but so he still say, doesn't know. No, still no idea. But he's in the book. I'd love, I'd love someone to send in the book so he actually reads about it in the book. But it'd be cool to... Because he was... I have a lot of respect for the guy now. He's done a lot for as an insight to see what the forces were doing in Afghan, like if it wasn't for people like Ross Kemp, I think, I mean, my mum would probably still think all I did was deliver posts because that's what I told her I did. <laughs> I never let on about the dangerous stuff. I was like, all I do is deliver letters, mum. That's all I do. What's the, so you mentioned a code before about needing blood. Yeah. What's op minimize? So op minimize was what was put in force if I casually came back to Bastion and hadn't made it. So, um, Anyone who was killed in the battlefield, the reason why Op Minimize was put in force was to stop a family back here in the UK finding out someone had died before it came through the, the proper chains. So Op Minimize meant that uh, it was tannoyed around, sta- around camp and uh, it meant that all the internet was shut down. So all the internet was shut down, all the telephones were shut down. Any external way of communicating from Camp Bastion was cut off. And it was very, uh, and it was a really good system. It was heartbreaking when you heard it tunneled around the station because you knew that somebody had died. But it was equally a really great system because, I mean, if you think about it, you know, some mum, son is out in Afghanistan. And and sometimes it's not necessarily someone phoning to say it was so-and-so. But if, you know, a whole, if five crews phone home and said it wasn't us, it doesn't sometimes take the brains of a rocket scientist to work out who it was. Mm. So it was a really good way of basically just locking everything down until the official system had kicked in and that message had got back properly to the family of whoever had been killed. What was really hard to take sometimes was when it was called and it was on for days. I mean, sometimes it would be on for maybe three hours. And obviously they didn't want to put it on for any longer than they had to because they were, they did eventually want everyone to be able to phone home and say, it's not me, I'm safe. Right. But, um, sometimes it would be on for days and you just thought that means that they're really struggling to get hold of whoever it is back home to tell oh, them my days. that yeah. somebody had been killed and, and then other times they'd be like it would be on it would be off it'd be back on again it'd be off because during that real kinetic time in herrick which was kind of oh six when did, you say kinetic you're talking about like yeah a, a lot of a lot of a lot of shooting, know, a lot of, of yeah, gunfights a lot, a lot of, battles. of troops in contact a lot of ied strikes a lot of british soldiers getting killed or injured during that time, it was on sometimes, like it'd be on, off, on, off. And, you know, we only used to get, at the very start, when I first went out to Herrick, you would get 20 minutes phone time a week to call home to your parents. And like prisoners in, in jail in the UK get 30 minutes phone calls a week. And we as British troops got 20. I was like, that's how, how mad is that? So, uh, and it was the same for the internet. So you would literally queue up for the internet. You'd queue for ages get your little 20-minute internet slot, try and send all your emails, and then go up the next night and get all your replies to your emails. And it was really archaic at the time, but it's better than having nothing. I'm sure the guys who were in the fobs up in Helmand, you know, they'd like dry your eyes buttercup, at least you had a phone (laughs) and internet. They had nothing. Uh, And I've always had that pinch moment my whole career is that, you know, I was lucky that we went back to Camp Bastion every night and we got to sleep in a cot bed in a tent. You know, some of them were sleeping literally, you know, in much worse conditions than us and eating boiling the bag ration packs for weeks on end. And I think that's because I think I saw that element of it because we went out to the fobs every day and the stuff that we were taking out to them was like literally, you know, boxes and pallets of boiling the bag rations. And um, 
that's why I love the Chinook so much because every time you put that ramp down, it made a difference to someone. You know, whether or not you were bringing guys back to the UK, well, back to Bastion, then come home at the end of their tour or bringing them back for their rest and recuperation, the R&R for a couple of weeks or whether or not you were recovering a casualty, which we spoke about earlier. But even so much as like, I remember putting the ramp down and we had a box of fresh rations on board and fresh rations are literally just that. Like we had a box of oranges, some apples and stuff that is, is degradable. So we had a box of apples and oranges and then all the boiling the bag stuff. And we took it off the back of the ramp. And I have never seen people so happy to see oranges and apples in their whole life. But these guys have been living on literally, you know, tear off the lid, heat it up in a you know, boiler, crap rations for however many weeks. Yeah. So to have a fresh orange to bite into was just like amazing. They need to get the AG1 by Athletic Greens out yeah, there. Exactly. So that's where, and you know, deliver post as well. Like even some of the guys out in the fobs, we would have a couple of mailbags for them on each of the daily runs. So we'd, you know, put the ramp down and we'd have a couple of bags of post for them. And just seeing their faces light up as they were like, yes, we've got freaking mails open. Because, you know, it was only it would only go up maybe once a week or whatever that they, they would get post. It sounds a little bit World War Two that, but it's true. You know, the guys who were in the trenches, literally, you know, literally, that resupply. Yeah. And we were that chain, we were that resupply. So that was quite cool. Oh, that would have been a good feeling. I just want to go back to OpMinimize because you were talking oh, yeah. about it and talking about the internet being closed down and, and how bad that was. And I know from reading your book what you you would get very frustrated when people would whinge about it. And I just want to make clear that you weren't whinging about it when you were saying you, ty- you had a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, but it would have been frustrating because – you talk about in your book about actually people going, oh, the internet's down again. Yeah, people whinged about it. And that used to really grip me because people would whinge about, and just some of the younger lads, you know, who hadn't really seen, hadn't seen the real trauma days in Afghan. So when the time they got out to theatre, it was a lot more benign. And when the internet was down, they would whinge about it. And I used to really grip me. I'd be like, at least in a couple of days time, you can make a phone call home and you can say, mom, dad, whatever. I'm all right. I'm still alive. Somebody hasn't got that privilege. So suck it up. <laughs> mm, would you call people out on it? Yeah. There was a couple of times that, I mean, I'm probably the most relaxed person you'll ever meet. And a couple of times I had to get a bit medieval on people. And the same with the thing called the ramp ceremonies. So ramp ceremonies where anyone that died in theater would then be repatriated. So for anyone listening to this here in the UK, you saw the other side of it when those bodies used to arrive back at Bryce Norton. Um, and, you know, they'd be draped in a coffin and the cortege would come up through uh, wooden Bassett. So that obviously gathered a lot of public support, didn't it? Whenever, well, public support is the wrong word because almost public grief. I wouldn't say anyone supported the war more because they saw bodies coming back, but the public really got behind the fallen soldiers, which was really, really good to see. But we were at the other end of that. So we were at the, the body leaving Afghanistan. So a ramp ceremony was where everyone on camp would go down and stand on the line and the coffin would come past. There'd be a ceremony by the Padre, who's essentially the the reverend in theatre. And then it would get loaded on the back of the Hercules and get flown off by the Hercules, mostly back to Kandahar and then back to the UK. So it was a real honour, in my opinion, to be attending one of those. You know, it was a privilege to be, you should want to go, you shouldn't be forced to go. And a, a a ramp, ceremony, a ramp ceremony was a, a, a three-line whip, which is the same we used to, like, you know, everyone had to attend. And in my opinion, it, it shouldn't, have, well, it should have been, but you should have wanted to go anyway. And I remember some of the guys whinging because they couldn't go to the gym. And I was like, get your fucking berries on. Get your fucking arse down to that. I'd be proud to stand there because at least you're standing there and you've got your legs intact. 
So, uh, yeah. It Good was, on you. Yeah, it just used to, you know, and I always find, I, I really felt very much like our job as Chinook Crews were to support the guys on the ground. You know, that's what we were there for. They were our whole reason for existing, really. So it was a real privilege to be, A, part of their journey in and out of the battlefield, alive or dead, but certainly for someone's last journey out of theatre, it's, you know, we should be really respectful of the fact that, you know, they've died doing something that they love and, and we've managed to make it through and out the other side. Was it often that you would be transporting... So my worst day on Mert was 14 shouts in one day. Um, not all, don't get me wrong, not all casualties that had died, but 14 of these Mert shouts, so 14 of these like bat phone going. And funny enough, they were all nearly back to back. So we were maybe on the first one and brought the casualty back to Nightingale. We're off for a refuel and then the radio would bell up again. You know, tr- well, like we were soldiers, like that movie where you're just yeah. in and out, in and out. In and out all day. And uh, you'd come in to do the refuel. And then you're in this quandary because you have got the aircraft, you've just brought casualty back. You need fuel. But do you, and you don't necessarily know where the next casualty is. You've just been warned off there's another nightliner coming in. So we'll get that call on the radio. So then the captain has to make a call. Do we go and get fuel? But once you're plugged in the fuel point, then, you, then it takes like maybe only a minute or two to unplug the fuel get yourself back off airborne again. But what happens if you don't have enough fuel and you're halfway to the casualty and you run out of fuel? So there's like this real constant drive to kind of keep the aircraft in a good position to go and get whatever you need to go and get. And that day, yeah, we had 14 of them and we, you know, we'd be coming back into Bastion with casualties on board and they'd be like Tricky 7-3, another nine liner. So we knew that we were already literally straight into the HLS. Tricky 7-3 is you. Yeah, that was the call sign of the Mert. So... Yeah, it was, it was carnage and it's like scenes from MASH. That's not an exaggeration, literally. But at the end of the day, your flying kit is just covered in blood. The engineers would have to wash out the bottom of the aircraft. So the floor of the aircraft, they'd just have to wash it out. And I always used to think about the engineers in that respect because they hadn't directly been involved in the day's events. They just saw like the aftermath of it. And I think that in itself is, is probably really hard to kind of process. Yeah. Because you're kind of watching from a bubble outside. And they'd have to wash all the blood out of the aircraft. And, and then eventually after that kind of period, they rubberized the floor on the Mert aircraft. So it basically had this rubber floor that was like essentially a big tarpaulin that was clipped onto the floor and meant that the entire floor was almost like, well, I would say waterproof, bloodproof. So you could have any sort of um, spills of body fluids on there. And then it was easy to wash out. Whereas when it's a metal floor with all the little tie down rings that a tunic has, it's an absolute nightmare if you've got somebody's blood out all over the floor. Um, so, yeah, those days were really oh, bad. And then one of the darkest days I think I had was we had a merch site to go and pick up five guys who'd all been killed on the same day. They were all from the rifles, I think, at a fob called Fob Wishton, which was halfway up Helmand. And, you know, as you put the ramp down, these five stretchers are coming over the ramp. And they're obviously being carried by their colleagues, their comrades. Each of them had a different flag pinned over the bodies because, you know, they weren't in a coffin yet. These are literally guys on stretchers with just something over the top of them. Their colleagues had put flags over the top of each one of them. And I can only assume that these flags were something that obviously that meant to each of the bodies. So there was a Union Jack over one of them. There was a rifles flag on one of them. There was a Man United flag, I remember. A Welsh flag on one of them. So they all got carried over and sat down. It was just heartbreaking to see the guys who set the stretcher down really carefully they would always touch the top of the flag and then go back out the ramp 
And I thought these guys have just lost five of their mates. Oh my God. And like bearing in mind, the fobs were really quite small. So there was only like, you know, sometimes maybe 40 guys there. Yeah. So to lose five of those in a, in a day, is it like a huge attrition rate? And then have to go back out the ramp, basically pick up your weapon and carry on the fight is just, you know, there's no, there's no smile I can give or no like words you can give to someone to make that better. You know, they've just, it, but it was heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. They must have been in pieces when yeah. they carried their mates onto the chunk. Yeah. So, and I think there, you know, there's probably an element of where they stopped feeling. I honestly think some of the guys from my, the Helmand era, uh, some of the troops have probably just desensitized themselves to feeling because, you know, it was just, at the, at its heyday, it was just, you know, we were losing British troops nearly every day at one point. So it was, yeah, pretty, pretty bad. And that's where whenever we pulled out of Helmand, sorry, whenever uh, the forces pulled out of uh, Afghanistan two years ago and the Americans withdrew, lots of people were asking, oh, what was the point? Like, what was it for? Why did we lose all those British soldiers for nothing, essentially? And... I, I kind of reasoned I, I sort of spoke to a lot of veterans about it and they said, look, you know, a lot of those guys died doing what they loved. Now, that doesn't make it easier for their mum or dad to hear, but they said they, a lot of veterans said I would still go back in an instant and do it all again. And from a Chinook Force point of view, we never, I didn't ever see my best friend get blown up or my best friend got lost on a stretcher, you know, having hit an IED or being shot. But we saw everybody's son, everybody's brother, everybody's boyfriend, husband, fiance, we saw the collective loss. So we saw the Chinook force, you know, picked up nearly every single body that was injured in that campaign or killed in that campaign. So we saw the Afghan locals get malleted. We saw, you know, other forces, the Americans, the Dutch all take a hit. And we saw all the British troops all come over the ramp. So as a force, we felt that collective loss. But I still think that, and a lot of the guys have said, if we make a difference to like one child, it's worth it. If we give one woman her voice to grow up, go to university, leave the country and have a full life, then it was worth it. And it might all be, it might only be a small, small difference, but it was a difference and it was worth it. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't a small difference. The yeah. stuff that you guys would have been doing and the lives that you would have saved, yeah. you you couldn't. Put... And I think that's what you've got to focus on. You've got to focus on the real positive that came yeah. out of Afghanistan. Because you couldn't measure that. No. You can't measure can't, a lot. Exactly. You're yeah. totally right, Andy. Totally right. I eventually got medboarded out in 2019, I left. And uh, that was one of the hardest things, really, was just that I put on the same flying, not literally the same flying suit, that'd be disgusting, but the same clothes for every day for 17 years. You know, I'd, I'd, I used to call it like my bat suit. You know, you'd put your flying yeah. suit on and you were you were a crewman. You were that person. And you had your name badge on your chest and... You yeah. were off to save lives and help people. Yeah. And then and suddenly you're like, just Liz McConaughey, who lives in Bathingstoke. Like, you're nobody. You're not important to anybody. You're not making a difference. And no one really gives a shit if you get up in the morning and, and go to work because you're not, you're, what you're doing is not making a difference. And it's really hard, kind of a couple of years, trying to find that purpose again and coming out the back of it. And then COVID hits. Yeah. So whilst the year that I was leaving the Air Force... My ex was also leaving the army and he'd been at the sharp end of the army. He'd been doing quite an important role in the army. So we were both kind of instantly has-beens. And there's nothing worse than when you've been in the military than going, I used to do this. Because you just sound like one of those old vets that walk on Remembrance Sunday. You say that, but so many people that 
aren't in the military when they hear that are like that's fucking cool yeah like if you say oh i was in the i was a chinook chick yeah like people are going to want to hear your stories like, that's why you're on this podcast but that's, that's why you've that written now, a book but yeah. when you're in the military you've just left all you can think about is that you're one of those yeah. people now yeah so it was a really hard year with my now ex-husband and so we really struggled and that resulted in in us separating and then going through a divorce so i'd left the job that i loved like absolutely loved i uh i got divorced and then boris locked us down and suddenly all my coping mechanisms that i'd used over the years so i got really into running during my air force career and whenever i first joined i couldn't even run a mile i was horrendous at running uh but over my RAF career i started running and running lots and I think for me, it was my web decompressing at the end of the day. So I would have a really shit day out in Afghanistan and I'd land and it'd be like debrief. I'm off to the gym. And then I would run and run to the point where I was like running 10, 12 miles every day. And I was capable of doing that. I was really, really fit at the time. And bars locked us down. So I couldn't really run anymore because I don't know if you remember at the very start of lockdown, we were like 20 minutes exercise a day. Yeah. So I was like, it's not even worth putting your trainers on for that. At the yeah. time, I was like, that's not even worth getting wet for. So I wouldn't, I stopped running and I stopped cycling and I stopped doing all the things I really loved. And I was also found that whilst I was in the Air Force, a lot of the, the, the way that I coped was just bury your head in the sand and keep busy, which we all do. Everyone's guilty of that. Keep busy, you know, go to loads of social events, go out with your mates. Don't let yourself think about stuff. So that was gone as well. And all I had was time to think about stuff. So for the whole of that sort of march onwards during lockdown. You're in your one bedroom flat at the same time. Yeah, and after the divorce, I'd moved back to my old flat. So I felt like I was in purgatory as well. But uh, yeah, me, four walls, uh, didn't have any pets at the time. You know, didn't even have the dog that I've got now. And it was just me. And it was awful. And I just, I just started to develop. I had no routine anymore. Routine went out the window. Didn't go running, didn't go, I'd look at my bike every day and go, just go cycling. But by that point, when we were allowed to go out for like an hour's exercise, I was just in such a bad place emotionally that, uh, you know, some days I'd get up and get dressed, put my full Lycra on, cycling shoes on, look at the front door and I'd be like, nah, back onto the sofa. And I was just really in a downward spiral. I then developed insomnia, probably because of the lack of routine and find myself looking up some of the guys that I picked up on the merch sites years and years previously from Afghanistan. People that you picked up in the Chinook. Yeah, which was something we had, as a force, never really done. Well, Whenever people... we used to bring those guys back to Bastion, we never really used to follow it up because we knew that what whatever they came out, whatever state they were in when they came out of the hospital, if we knew that, it could be quite detrimental to our health. So we just, when they were on board our aircraft, they were the most precious piece of freight. And that's how we sort of viewed it certainly that's how i viewed it that person is a really important piece of freight really precious i've just got to get them back to bastion to the hospital once that bit's over try not to think about it don't look them up don't find out what their name are is don't see if they've survived just well you obviously knew if they hadn't survived because minimize was happened but you know don't find out if they've lost all of their legs or they're never going to see again or they're deaf for life just don't, don't find out but i started to look these guys up and, you know, find out if they were, if they had kids, if they were married, if they had fiancés. And it was just really negative, negative cycle. And instead of going, all the alarm bells are going, you know, all the red flashing signs of, this is not good, Liz, were happening. But I didn't say to anyone, I didn't call up a single person because everyone was going through their own shit during COVID, weren't they? Everyone had their own issues. Mm. So I never phoned anyone to tell anyone. And- Let's not forget that you'd been desensitized to like, you've, you've seen people with big, 
physical problems yeah not mental problems necessarily yeah. you've seen the worst of the worst of what people can go through yeah so, so you're you're contextualizing that with what you're going through and not really thinking that yeah. maybe you should speak to someone and tell them i hate it i always hated being a burden my entire career i never wanted i think it was a, and that was purely from my point of view nobody ever none of the lads ever ever said that to me or ever ever would have made me feel like that but as a female I think I always thought don't be a burden like don't be the freaking one that wants to go home early from a night out or the one that's the lat like falling at the back of a squad run or whatever so I was always like don't be a burden don't be a pain in the ass and I think that mentality stayed with me and I just never really wanted to bother anyone with it so I still kept kept going down this really bad tunnel and in August 2020 I woke up one day and I had been taking a drug called amitriptyline which was I'd been prescribed it for my neck injury because I was having really bad headaches because of that and I'd been prescribed this drug like way like years before back in 2018 I had been taking it on and off like whenever I was getting one of these headaches I would take it and then I'd stop taking it and because I'd been prescribed it as a painkiller I didn't really know all the other things that this drug was used for and it turns out that this drug is used for uh, it's an antidepressant. It's a really good sleeping tablet, like a really good sleeping tablet. And it is a nerve blocker, so it blocks nerve pains. Anyway, I didn't know any of this. So, but I did know it was really good at sleeping tablet. And I be, I started taking it again in uh, that August because we had a really hot spell of weather. And I hadn't slept for days properly. I'd been out in the lash on the Saturday night. was really hungover. Sunday came, it was still really warm. So I took one of these amitriptyline to help me get to sleep. And I took another one on the Monday and on the Tuesday. And on the Wednesday, I woke up and I felt like the Grim Reaper had body snatched me. I literally woke up that day and was like, yeah, I'm going to kill myself. Like today's the last day I'm going to be alive. I don't want to, I don't want to survive till tomorrow. I just want this all to go away. So I realized that that was quite out of character straight away. And I phoned my GP and the GP, uh, in fact, I sent an email first. I sent an email to the GP saying, uh, I've woken up. I'm having these suicidal thoughts. It's very unlike me. I think I need to speak to someone. And I got a phone call back from the pharmacy, which was next door to the GP, who said, hello, yeah, we've got your email. You sent it to the wrong person. You need to phone the surgery next door. Like not a, oh my God, we've read your email. And like, are you okay? They were just like, yeah, you've sent it to the wrong person, blah, blah, blah. So I then phoned the GP. They then gave me the brush up and said, oh, you need to phone back on Thursday for an appointment. And then I just broke down in tears. And eventually the lovely lady on the phone, or Mabel or whatever she was called, said, right, it's fine. We'll get the doctor to call you this afternoon. So the doctor called me that afternoon at two o'clock. And he said, uh, so explain what happened. Broke down in tears again. Said, look, all morning I've been feeling like I want to, like I really want to end my life. And it's very unlike me. Uh, You know, I'm usually a really upbeat, motivated person. And he said, uh, okay, it, at no point did he say, where do you live? You know, because I lived across from the surgery. I, I think at one point I mentioned to him, look, I can see the surgery from where I, like, I live. And all he did was prescribe me some antidepressants. And he said, come and get them this afternoon and you take them straight away, but they'll make you feel worse before they make you feel better. Oh, Which you is, don't need that. Well, this is all like, I mean, that was, a, you know, at least he gave me the advice on those, but he never looked at my notes to see that I'd been, I'd reordered some amitriptyline on the Monday because I'd started taking it again for sleeping. So he never looked at my notes to check that. He also never asked if I'm taking any other medication because I think if he'd have asked that question at the time and I'd have said, well, I've started retaking amitriptyline, he might have gone, 
oh my god right this is probably why knocked that on the head yeah yeah but he didn't ask any of those questions and he never said to come across the surgery or or anything like that so i hung up the phone and was basically like well that's it then like literally no one cares so i skipped across the surgery like spent the whole afternoon military like precision planning my death and what how are you planning it like what were you doing well, what's really scary is that if you look at the internet, there are loads of forums about how to kill yourself, which is a really scary thing. And it absolutely needs looked at by someone bigger than me who's got more power than me to close these places down. But if you Google, you know, how many amitriptyline does it take to kill myself? You can find out. So I did all the maths and basically you could be worked out that for my weight and height, depending what you eat, like I could be in a 50-50 bracket of live or die. And I knew that I had like 13 amitriptyline left in my packet. I'd reordered. This is how calculated my mind was that day. I'd reordered some. So that was going to be Devoid 19. of any emotion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this was like a deliberate mission, operation from work. I had to complete this that night. So I did the maths on how many amitriptyline I could get hold of from my repeat prescription plus what I still had left. And that was 95. And then I, worked, like, on these forums, was working out what that would mean. And essentially, that would either kill me outright or depending on basically how my body dealt with the the pills and what I eaten would I, I might be in the 50 50 survive so I worked all that out I did like literally a piece of paper with calculations written on it uh all and the weird thing was I didn't want to have a point where I would just be fuck myself up for life I didn't want that horrible you know we hear oh, these overdose things yeah. where someone comes out this. I thought no if you're gonna do it let's do it properly but I never considered anything like you know jump off the balcony or go and find the nearest tree and then jump in front of it. I was absolutely adamant. All I wanted to do was go to sleep and sleep for just, just end my life. So anyway, I spent the day calculating on that. Four o'clock went across to the pharmacy and in the same pharmacy where I'd sent the email that morning saying I want to kill myself, they had me the bag of drugs that I'd reordered on the Monday. So that amitriptyline and then a bag of the sertraline that the doctor prescribed me that afternoon. So I paid for it with my contactless card. I think it was like 13 quid and skipped off back home thinking like almost like this weight had been lifted off my shoulder. Like, no, I can do it. Really weird. Went home, stopped to get some chips on the way home because the chip van was parked up and I never eat chips. And I thought, fuck it, if you're going to eat, this is, this is how weird that whole day was. Mm. I, I ordered my chips, got my chips, went home, finished my chips, tidied the entire apartment, had a shower, got dressed, did my hair and makeup, you know, absolutely weird behavior and then at midnight sat down on the edge of the bed and took 95 amitriptyline one by one wasn't sick washed them down with some water no alcohol involved no tears involved i'd actually written a suicide note that day to my parents um and but there was no emotion i was just void of emotion at this point and it was like watching my life through a lens for the whole day when i look back on it now but at the time it felt like really reasoned behavior. Like this was the most normal thing I should be doing that day. So a very, very weird experience. So, yeah. What did you write in the suicide note? So I I, met, I wrote to my mom and dad. Ironically, I never actually wrote a uh, a name on the envelope. I put it in an envelope and it, I didn't put a name on the envelope. But it was to my mom and dad and basically said, look, you know, I'm thank you for everything you've done for me. I'm so sorry it's come to this, but I just need to be at peace now. I uh, I wrote to my brothers because I've got two great brothers. One's older. He's in the army, like I mentioned earlier. My little brother's just amazing. Uh, he's just the, 
just the life and soul of every party. It just makes me laugh every time I see him. Um, and I've got two little twin nieces who are just beautiful. They're identical twins, Erin and Orla. They're just the most amazing little things on the planet. And I basically said to them, you know, Stuart, I'm sorry, I'm not going to see you get married because he was meant to get married that year. Uh, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm not going to see Erin and Orla grow up. Uh, and I said that I was, uh, I mentioned a couple of friends in the suicide note and said, I'm really sorry for putting you through this. And I'm sorry that Anna, who's a friend of mine who lost her life to cancer, said, I'm sorry that she lost her life and I'm taking mine. But I just need the voice, like this doll, go away. And not a tear was shed while writing all that. This is the most, you say, the weirdest thing. So yeah, I uh, had the suicide note left on the table. Took the overdose. And then that's all I remember. I think I vaguely remember someone being on the phone saying, don't go to sleep, Elizabeth. Stay on the phone. But it's that classic. I don't know if I can remember that with complete clarity. But that's the last thing I think I remember of that night and then woke up two days later in uh business Oak hospital on an incubator machine with a tube down my throat on a bed tubes everywhere all I could see was faces and a clock uh, and yeah I'd survived so, yeah so it turns out I didn't really know how I'd got to the hospital I thought uh I thought it was the Thursday morning so I took the overdose on the Wednesday night so I could see a clock at the end of the bed and the clock said half six. So I just assumed it was Thursday morning. And it wasn't. It was actually Friday morning. And I'd been on life support for two days. And I didn't know how I got there. I had no idea. And uh, the only things that was with me, because there was no one else there, like no family. It was just me in the hospital. So, uh, and I couldn't talk, obviously, because I had this throat thing, this tube down my throat, which in itself was probably the most horrendous experience of my life. It's like drowning, but being alive, it's horrible. Uh so eventually when the, the, the doctors started telling me that I'd been brought in by an ambulance crew and all I could think was like, how, like, how, like who called the ambulance? Was All I could think was who found me and who have, who's called the ambulance. Um, and it turned out then when I eventually got out of the hospital on the Saturday, I got reunited with my phone, which had been left at home on my bed and my best friend had actually found when she went to my house and I wasn't there. I'd called 911 at 10 to 1 that night. After you'd taken all the tablets? Yeah. So I'd called the Samaritans for 13 seconds. It, this is us. We backtracked on my phone to see who I'd called that night. And I called the Samaritans for 13 seconds. And then I called 911. Why, why 911? Why not 999? I must have been watching too much Netflix or something in uh, lockdown. But I'd called 911 at 10 to 1 that night. And I was on the phone to them for like 11 minutes. So I only assumed that that was me calling. Something in my body obviously didn't want to give up. I called 911 and then, uh, yeah, so it turns out an ambulance crew had come around to my house, uh, had found me. Um, I, I live really close to the hospital, I live next to the hospital actually and I, I spoke to the ambulance crew a few weeks later, I phoned them to thank them and they said if you hadn't lived so close to the hospital you wouldn't have made it. So there was ECG strips all over the floor as well. When my Basically the next morning after taking the overdose, I was made to be at the gym and my best friend, she just had a spidey sense, I wasn't at the gym and she went, so? yeah bestie sue she was like there's something going and i texted her the night before and thanked her for all her help during lockdown and whatnot and she just had this like weird feeling that something wasn't right so she raced around in my apartment the door was open i wasn't there my phone was on the bed and then all over the floor in the living room was ecg strips you know that you put on your heart when you're mm. essentially having a heart attack or heart failure and she then called the police and the police then tracked me down and said your friend is in intensive care in business hospital so I put her through hell as well. Uh, 
So yeah, it was, I remember coming out of hospital on the Saturday and thinking, well, I was euphoric. I was like, well, that's it then. You know, it's, it's not going to get any worse than this. I've tried to kill myself. Like life can't get much worse than that. Yeah. And I don't think I'd really grasp the concept of, you know, that was me tipping the lid off the can and throwing the contents everywhere. But then the journey begins of having to put all that stuff back where it belongs in your head. And yeah. that's where the real journey starts. The, you know, your low point is definitely not the suicide. It's the, the stuff that comes after that of trying to put life back together. <laughs> what about your family? Like, when, did they arrive at the hospital and see you in that state? Like, how was that part for you? Because that's where it would have, you know, you talk about being devoid of emotion initially yeah. when you're writing the note and taking the pills. Yeah. When the family come into the hospital, it must have really hit home, actually. That was, a, that was the hardest bit. And so whenever I came to and I had this throat, this tube down my throat and I thought I was drowning, I didn't know what was going on and there's machines going off everywhere. And my overriding thought was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Which is so ironic considering what my mindset had been two days previously. And but that just shows what what what, what it is. Like yeah. it's, a, it's, it's your mind... Like playing Play tricks, tricks on, on you, you. is yeah. yeah a very easy way to describe it, but yeah. that's what it is. And I really just you know I had this overwhelming. Didn't I remember trying to pull the the tube out of my throat, and then they put me back to sleep again, and then brought me back around again and calmed me down and sort of talked to me as if what was going on. But I remember like crying, and the tears were coming down my face, and I I couldn't do anything. I was just literally lying there with this tube down my throat, crying, and and thought I was dying, and I was just my overwhelming emotion was like, don't die, don't die. But anyway, so whenever the, the, the good thing is that because my brother lived in Scotland uh, and my other brother lived actually in Aldergrove over uh, back home. He was in the army, he was posted there. And my parents obviously lived back in Northern Ireland. It took them a amount of time for them to get there. So for those two days where I was on life support, it, it took the hospital ages to get hold of my mum actually because they were on their holiday home in, in Southern Ireland. So I'd, I'd already got the tube taken out at the time. My little brother got to the hospital. He was the first person there. And the doctor came around and said, look, your little brother's arrived at the hospital. Do you want to see him? And I remember going, no, I don't, I don't want to see him. And then he said, look, he, he's really upset. He wants to see you. So Stuart came in and it was just awful. I mean, seeing seeing the the reflection of suicide in somebody else's face was really hard. And uh, yeah, he came in. going to get upset. But he, no, he, it's really, I'm getting upset. Yeah, well, it's it, like, it's, know, it's, 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 he's it's my a little brother. And it was like my job to look after him in life. And I put him through that. So he came in and he's usually the most jovial person in the world. Like my little brother can make a light of anything and he was just destroyed and it was really hard. So he arrived and then uh, about three or four hours later, my big brother arrived and he's an, an engineer. So he is very analytical, like likes problems and solutions. And he was very much like, how did my little or how did my yeah little sister get to this point? what happened that she got to this point and how can we fix it? So he was like talking to the nurses. He did it like he obviously came and we sat down for a while. And I mean, it's, it's really hard to find the words to say something when you're in that point because I don't even think I knew how to explain what had happened. Never mind trying to explain to them. Um, But yeah, he just wanted to kind of figure out how I'd got there type thing and was almost angry, understandably so, I think, because he kind of was like, I think he felt like he could have done more to stop me, but nobody could. The best bit was if if Daniel Craig had come around for tea that night, I wouldn't have changed what I did. I still would have taken the overdose because when you're in that mindset and that mind, that day, 
uh, it checked out mentally of life. Like I, 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 I prefer it in the book, like being on a water slide. And whenever you're in the tunnel, you're only going one way. You're not gonna, you don't climb back up again and go back to the start. You're literally, this is where I'm going. This is the direction I'm going. And nobody could have stopped me doing what I did that day. And I think that's a really important message for people who have been on the periphery of suicide, either had someone that lost to suicide or know someone who's tried to kill themselves. Is there's not really a lot when you when someone gets to that point, there's not a lot you can do. You can maybe intervene before they get to that point if you can pick up the signs, but that mostly relies on someone saying, I'm not okay. And that's the hard bit. But um, no one could have changed my, the outcome that day. And that was a message that I really had to put across to my brothers and my parents. Because then the doctor said, right, your mom's in the cot on the phone. And I was like, I don't want to speak to her. And she'd obviously been getting the updates from the doctors for like 24 hours. And uh, she kept phoning the hospital. And they were like, yeah, we're going to go and speak to your daughter. And, and the doc would come in. Your mom's on the phone again. I'm like, I can't speak. I'm not ready yet. And I thought, well, what the fuck do I say to my mom? You know, or how, what, what? Well, how do you even open that conversation? So uh, eventually my brother said, you need to speak to mom. So I did. I spoke to mom and dad. And, you know, it's it really hard. It was just, I don't even think I could find the words. It was just a phone call of tears, maybe. But they've been amazing. I mean, they very much said, your brothers are there. We're happy because they didn't come over from Northern Ireland. And they knew that I think at that point I just needed space to kind of process everything. So I eventually flew back home to Northern Ireland about a month later and that was a pretty emotional family reunion. But they've been amazing. You know, they've kind of let me take my time to kind of put life back together. And, and it's really good now. You know, it's been... The last bit of the book is very much that journey from going from like rock bottom to redefining life, refining your purpose. And all the files that I chucked out of my head that day, putting them back in. But reading them and kind of going um I think if you just put them back in where they were before and you don't acknowledge what's on each of the little files then you're never really going to get better you're just putting more plasters on the problem so acknowledging all that trauma and kind of going it's okay to feel like this after the stuff I've seen was really important so it's been like a two-year journey but I finished my counseling last last year and I'm in a really good place now. You yeah. look like you're in a good place. Yeah. You look well. You're very chirpy. <laughs> but I, th- I feel like the chirpiness in you is part of the reason why you got to that point. That yeah. People I mean. can't maybe see yeah. what's going on behind there. Like you you can even tell now, like when you're telling this story, like you tell it quite lightheartedly and you're like smiling and laughing and joking yeah. about it. But it's quite a serious thing. Yeah. And like you could tell that if you were going through a really tough time, it would be very, very difficult to unpick that from the outside and for someone to see it. I was the master of disguise. And that I think that's what shocked so many people because everyone knows me as like little Irish Liz, you know, always the life and soul of a party, always the one trying to help other people and put other people back together and would just never let on. Uh, and one of the things I state really clearly in the book at the end of it is that you have to ask people these days because people used to go, I think a few people picked up on the fact that I was in not a great place and they'd go, Are you okay? And I'd be like, yeah, mate, fine. Living the dream. We always say that, don't we? Living the dream. Living the dream, yeah. And How things going? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you ask twice, if people then stop and go, are you, are you sure you're okay? Are you really okay? That's sometimes enough to crack the eggshell. And I find that with a few of my mates is that 
now you know if I do ask twice of someone it's just enough for someone to go actually no I'm really not or and and I've said to a lot of friends that what I find I, I do now is when people ask how I'm doing I give it a number I go like oh you know what I'm an eight today or I'm a five or you know and you give it a number and it's so much easier to like package your mental health up in a number and then people will go how can we get you to a seven today Liz I'd be like well this shit's gone on and sometimes just by people asking that question then it prompts you to say what's got you to that point and we'll put links to the Samaritans and the synopsis to the show as well so if you're going through something at the moment you're listening to this and you need some help there's going to be links in the synopsis so you can just scroll down to whatever device you're listening to and you'll be able to go and find help and find the help that you need your book Liz it's amazing what people get out of this interview is probably a lot of like I've focused a lot of on the army stuff and the mental health side of it um, but there's it's so funny as well and we've only scratched the surface so if someone is wanting to go and buy your book now where do they get it so the book is published by Pen and Sword uh, and they've got like, stacks of copies. So if you're going to get the book from anywhere, go straight online and get it order it straight from Pen and Sword. Amazon have got it on there as well, but they keep selling out, which is a good problem to have. Um, and so WH Smith and Foils. But I'd say if you definitely want a copy and you want it to arrive soon, uh, yeah, go to Pen and Sword. It's called Chinook Crew Chick. Before I let you go, I know you've written a book, but you also write poetry as well. Yeah. So the one that a lot of my Chinook friends really, really like, um, and some of them want to read its services this year, is this one, which I wrote before the book, actually, during my, um, my coming undone, which you'll figure out when you hear the poem. Does your mother know where you are? Their fresh faces come towards us at the flash of my lamp. Their burgans weigh heavy as they climb up the ramp. A mix of fear and adrenaline, each can barely retain. I ponder how they'll look when I see them again. Later that day comes the inevitable shout. My heart sinks in my chest as we begin the sprint out. Recalling their faces, which one could it be? I pray not the youngster that was sat next to me. Barely old enough to be allowed out late at night, this soldier is wrestling in his first and last fight. As he lies on our floor, medics trying their best. But sadly, I watch as he takes his last breath. As the aircraft shuts down, minimise echoes in my ear. The dreaded words that no soldier ever wants to hear. I stop in my tracks and take a minute to dwell. Is the war that we're fighting worth the soldier who fell? My thoughts turn to the officer who's donning his hat. Then to his mother. Does she know where he's at? I wonder if her heart knows what is to come. And does it break in the instant his beats its last one? When the battle is over, we recover the rest. The boys from before, broken men now, at best. Their burgans look empty, but way heavier than before, because they are now full with the sorrows of war. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.